Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. So this is Biblical Literacy 101. My name is Matthew Swart. I'm going to be teaching tonight from the book of Psalms, chapters 8 and 9. I'm very glad to see everybody here tonight, as well as anyone who might be listening to this podcast later on. Thank you very much for tuning in. So let's start off with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand here tonight with all my brothers and sisters for the opportunity to teach your word, Lord. I thank you for all that you have revealed to me. I pray you would give me the grace to speak well and effectively tonight, Lord, that would edify your people, all those here tonight, as well as all those listening at a later point, Heavenly Father. May your name be glorified, honored, and exalted through our time tonight, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, friends. Let's get on into it. So we are starting off in Psalm 8. If you would like to turn there, if you have not already. So the intro to Psalm 8, the text above verse 1, it reads to the choir master, according to the Giddith, Psalm of David. So starting off one by one here, according to the choir master, as has been mentioned before, Uh, One way one can interpret this is that the psalm is meant to be sung. It is written to the literal choir master, as um, whoever's arranging David's music is a worship director of sorts. Other translations will put this as to the director of music, while some make the suggestion that the director of music is actually God himself when David writes this. So there's a couple different ways to look at it. Um, I don't think any one of them is necessarily more correct than the other. But that's the different ways we can take that part of it. Now, according to the Giddith, uh, I'm assuming no one here knows exactly what that is initially, because I certainly didn't. I don't think it's a common term. As many of these titles before the Psalms can often be a bit ambiguous and difficult to work through because they're not mentioned often other places. So I will take my ventures at what the Giddith means. Like other terms, it's not extremely clear. We have limited information. But my stab at it is this, that it is most likely a stringed instrument of some sort. Uh, There's a good chance that it was brought back by David from the town of Gath, where he sojourned while he was on the run from Saul, which you can find in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses 1 to 7. So this, may in, this also could indicate that the psalm was written during the time of his sojourn. So it could either be that it was written while he was in Gath and he happened to be around the Giddith, which was an instrument at that time, or it could be that he brought the Giddith back with him to Jerusalem and then he wrote this later utilizing it. Now the word Giddith, uh, when you take it to its root in the Hebrew language, it's related to the crushing of grapes also, which is another way that it could be interpreted that it's um, a stringed instrument, but that it's also related to um, 
something that the people would sing while they're in uh, the ceremony of crushing grapes during wine, and they would sing it and rejoice while they're stomping up and down and doing a grape crushing. So it's meant to be a joyful song, the type of tune that people would sing and celebrate while they're getting the, the new wine ready. So that is for the Giddith. And a Psalm of David, of course, this is from King David, of the king of the Israelite nation. Um, if you don't know who he is, you can read all about his story in First and Second Samuel, but we will move on from there. So the first chunk we will start off here is the first half of verse one. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, this first half of the verse really gives us the theme of the psalm in general, that the whole psalm is meant to celebrate how majestic and glorious the Lord is across every facet of life. Whereas when it says, in all the earth, it's meant to encompass that across every aspect of life, across every aspect of the earth, your name is majestic and lofty and elevated, as we will see through the rest of the psalm. So then, if we move on to the second half of the verse in 1b into verse 2, we start off, it reads, you have set your glory above the heavens. What this is meant to indicate is that the glory of God, as we just saw in the first half of the verse, is so lofty and elevated and elegant that it's above even the heavens themselves, in a way of saying even the highest most elevated place that the Israelites could imagine, even that, the glory of God, surpasses that. So it's a lofty, beautiful thing, the glory of God. So then we read in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, on first read, um, particularly if you don't have any context about childlike faith or other references to this, it's a bit confusing on its, faith, on its face because children, babies and infants aren't exactly the class of human beings that you would expect strength to come from. It's kind of the exact opposite of that. But there is something here. So one way to help understand this verse is one instance where it was used. And even before that, I wanna look at the word still to still the enemy and the avenger. Just to provide a little bit of context to that. So that word still, um, that is the Hebrew word. As far as I understand, it's pronounced Shabbat. So these are two other places where that word still was used. Um, one in Genesis 2-2, when it says uh, on the seventh day, God rested, he Shabbat from all of his work. And we also see another instance in 2 Kings 23-5, where King Josiah is getting rid of all of his idolatrous, sinful priests, and he put down, he shabbathed the idolatrous priest. So that provides a little bit of context on saying that what the praise of the infants is doing is it's really a, a complete stop, a removal from strength of the enemies of God. So that's a little bit of context on that. And now we can see one instance where this verse itself was actually referenced by Christ which is in Matthew 21, 15 to 16. This is when the Lord was arriving in Jerusalem to, um, as king, and uh, the children were 
praising Hosanna to the son of David, and the chief priests and the Pharisees saw it and says they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So as a way of seeing this stilling literally happened as the Pharisees are coming, trying to accuse Jesus. He's like, guys, hold up. Look, even the infants are praising me. Everyone is celebrating my kingship. Um, so that's one instance where we can see it used. It's also a bit sassy by Jesus here. Like, come on, guys, have you never read this thing? <laughs> so that's a little bit context for that. Um, so just before we move on there, so that I think it's the, the general sense we get is that where the common kings of the earth and the world may use large weapons of war and their strength and such, that God is so powerful that he is able to use even the praise of small children to still his enemies. That is the kind of God we serve. So if we move on to the next chunk here in verses three to five, the text reads, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, you may take note here, the ESV um, puts verse 5 in together with 6-7. Um, it groups those together. I lumped verse 5 together because it seems to all generally be talking about this theme as the, the role of man in relation to God, specifically. So, as we start digging into this, we start off. First phrase I want to focus on is the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Um, this is a common phrase we see throughout Scripture. Um, other places in Scripture talk about how God has firmly established the earth. It's the same phrase here, with the idea being that the heavens, the work of your fingers, they did not arrive there by accident. They were intentionally set in place by the intentional, thoughtful work of God. And I think there's something to be said here that David is referencing this as one of the chief reasons why God deserves glory and is worthy to be praised. And I think it makes sense when we look at it from modern, our world from a modern evolutionary perspective with the idea of just random natural chance and that everything in nature just arrived here on total accident. And we wonder why God seems less glorious. It's because we've robbed him of the authorship of one of his chief demonstrations of his glory is nature itself. So then um, the last phrase here, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Um, definitely a beautiful phrase and I want to really flesh this out a little bit and I want to look at that word mindful and then the word care. So if we look at the first word here, mindful, um, once again, that's the Hebrew word and the funky way it's written. As far as I pronounce, it's the car. The way this is commonly used throughout scripture is in the sense of remembrance. That when God being mindful is him remembering, being attentive, that be on the mind of God. And then the second word I thought was really interesting. The word care, uh, most translations will actually translate this as visit that what is the son of man that you visit him? 
And this is used throughout scripture, it can mean to visit, it can also be to charge, as we would see in Genesis 44, where the captain of the guard charged Joseph with the care of the prisoners under him, or also, in many instances, to number, as in a census, as we would see in Exodus 30, 14, everyone that passes among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering under the Lord. So we see charged and numbered and care all here are the same word, pakad. And what I really got from this that struck me is that God's caring is not just this general sense of affection that we may generally associate with the word. As we see, it's him remembering, but also being involved in a way, in that same way that the word was used for Joseph being charged with a responsibility or the Israelites being numbered and counted. I believe the idea that David is getting at here is that God is paying attention to his people and he is just marveling that this great, beautiful, holy God who has set nature itself in the place, whose glory is above the heavens, that he would condescend to lowly man and be actively involved and intimate in their lives. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth about our God. So then um, this last phrase here is also very interesting. It says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So uh, the heavenly beings, it's a very interesting word here. The, The Hebrew word is Elohim, which throughout scripture is mostly used to talk about God himself, although it is sometimes used to refer to judges. The only place in scripture where it is used to talk about angels, as is commonly translated here, is in this psalm. So one would think that's a little bit shady, but what muddies the waters a little bit more is when we look in the the book of Hebrews, which actually references this verse, we see from that the, the New Testament authors took this to mean angels. At least when the Hebrew was translated into Greek, that's how they translated it, which one would think that they were an awful lot closer to the writing, that they would have a grasp of it better. But um, so I don't want to say that I understand the translation better than the authors of the New Testament. <laughs> but I do think it's worth noting here in that the way that some will interpret this verse and that I agree is that instead of it talking about angels itself, is you could take this to say, you have made him a little lower than God in the sense of saying, you've made man in the image of God. In another way, that we're not quite God, but we're like him a little bit lower. And that hits me in the sense of, I think it's, I don't think we ever contemplate what it means, just the glory of the fact that this glorious God who created nature itself, who condescends to us, who cares to us, that wow, you've, we've been made in his image. And that David is marveling, that is a beautiful, extraordinary thing. So that's one sense, that's the interpretation I like. But once again, it can also be that it's still beautiful to say that you've made him a little bit lower than the angels, if you translate it that way, in that you know, still mankind is lower than these celestial beings for now, although later kind of crowned on an equal level with them. So that's there. So then if we dive into the end of the text, uh, we look at verse six to eight, which read, 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the seas. So when we look at this, I think this is the natural follow-up to, in the end of verse five, when it says you've crowned him with glory and honor. Well, how has God crowned a man with glory and honor? By giving him dominion over the earth. That in the sense of man being allowed to rule and take dominion over the earth and do this, this is the way of God giving man glory and honor throughout the earth. And just some interesting notes within the text here. Uh, this is just my personal observation. I didn't find anyone who got on my same train of thought. But when it says in verse seven, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the way I took this to be saying is that sheep and oxen would have been animals, animals that were commonly domesticated within Israel and ones that they tended to and Israelites used, used for work, while beasts of the field would probably be referring more to the wild beasts. So in other words, the text could be saying, you have put every animal, both those domesticated and wild, that all you have given to the dominion of man. So, and then we will get to the end here. And it closes the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think this makes clear that this is the, the core theme of the psalm about how powerful and all-encompassing is the essence of God through every aspect of life, from our very creation itself to the nature we dwell in, to the animals around us, that God's influence and his attention is manifest throughout all the earth, and it's something that ought to cause us to go into a total state of awe. So that is the first read of the psalm, but before we go through this one, I just would like to add something else that I didn't immediately catch in my first read, but that many have noted, such as the New Testament authors, is that this psalm also seems to be clearly foreshadowing to Christ in many ways. So Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9, and 1 Corinthians 15, 27 both reference this. Specifically, if we look back at verse 5, will be the first instance that the foreshadowing seems to take place. That one says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That the first part of that, the made him a little lower than the heavenly beings is referring to the incarnation about Christ's condescension from heaven into an earthly body. And then the crowned him with glory and honor is referring to the cross and his total victory over that and that through that monumental event that God crowned him. And then when we look at verse six, this is where Paul will quote in Corinthians, which says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That the way the apostle Paul took this to mean was referring to Christ taking death itself under his feet as he's in the process of progressively taking dominion over all things. So um, I think one thing, you know, this is Biblical Literacy 101. One thing we can learn through the Psalms like this is it may be confusing to look at this and say, wait, is it talking about Christ or is it talking about man? Well, the answer is yes. That one aspect of scripture that we see, um, we see this in the Psalms, we also see this a lot in the prophets where um, 
a writer will be speaking of an event that is true to them, and they may mean one particular thing when they are writing, but God also uses their words to refer to a future event. Um, so that's not contradictory. It just means that the words both have a future, have a present, and a future meaning. So that is Psalm 8. And I probably should have put this in the same slideshow. It makes sense, but we will go over to Psalm 9. All right. So as with Psalm 8, I'm just going to take a quick drink. We see there is an introduction here at the top. Um, some of your translations may say a few different things. In the ESV, it reads to the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. Um, some of your translations may say according to the death of the son, which <laughs> seems quite the difference. So if we run through that piece by piece, once again, to the choir master, same principle we talked as last time, could be literal choir master, David's worship director, could also be God himself, either of those. Now, according to Muth Laban, once again, a pretty difficult term exactly to understand. It's not used throughout scripture. It's really just here. But how most commentators will understand this is that it's, it's a tune of some sort. Time, kind of if we were to say, according to Mary had a little lamb in that sort of vein. Um, so that's one interpretation of it. But So if we talk about when some will say to the death of the son, is that is how some interpret the, the root of Muth Laban to actually mean. And to take what that's referring to is the son in question actually being Goliath. And that the, the psalm is David recounting later on his victory over Goliath. So um, that would, it would make sense in the psalm. There's no reason to really discredit it. There's also not a ton of support behind it, but it makes sense in the context of the psalm. So either way, what we can get from that is the psalm should generally be treated as being a victorious type of tone, that this is a celebration of God's power as a warrior would celebrate after winning a great victory. So that's what we want to keep in mind when we go into this. So starting off in verses 1 and 2, the text reads, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, nothing um, incredibly deep I want to go under the surface here, other than it's very interesting that David phrases all of his statements in the future here, which we'll actually see be a common theme throughout the psalm about David's faith in God's future action and praising him as a result of that. Um, so we'll also latch in, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart is something we'd be wise to latch onto that it's clear that wholehearted and not half-hearted worship is important to David as he presents here. So if we move on into verses three and four, the text reads, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. 
you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Now, something to note here is verse starting here and going up until verse 8. Um, one biblical theologian by the last name of Kidner noted here that the way the grammar is here is in the Hebrew prophetic perfect. It's what it's called which is describing events yet to happen as if they had already come to pass, which stays in line with what we saw in the first two verses, that David is phrasing this, saying that when my, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you as if they've already done this. You have maintained, you have sat on the throne. Is the tense is that it's going, it's both the future and now. So it hasn't happened yet, but David has such trust and faith in God, he's saying it as if it's already come to pass. So within here, um, a few things we want to note is, for you have maintained my just cause. It's important to note here that David is not praising cause for just, or praising God for just maintaining his cause in general, but he's careful to note that his efforts have lined up with God's justice itself, and he's praising him in light of that. And says, you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. This will be a theme we'll see throughout the psalm is that God is active and involved in the world. He's actively sitting on his throne administering righteous judgment, which is being administered throughout the earth. So we will keep moving here verse five and six, which read, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. So the theme that David is really getting out through these is the temporary nature of the wicked men of the earth that their legacy does not last. What God, God's actions will make the very memory of them perish. It'll be an everlasting ruin, ruins and their names will be blotted out forever. That man is mortal and temporary. But then if we look at the next chunk, in verses seven to eight, David then makes a direct contrast here, which reads, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So note in the beginning of here, in verse seven, it says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever, which is a direct contrast to the temporary nature of mankind and um, ruling and then having their memory rooted out, their cities destroyed, being everlasting ruin, David says, no, the Lord is enthroned forever. He is not like mankind. He's forever and eternal and powerful. Um, I will also note here, when I was first reading through this psalm and I started digging into it, I expected David to contrast the temporary nature of the wicked with the lasting change that he would do for himself. But I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that he actually referenced the Lord instead, which I think is something we could definitely learn from, that David's emphasis is always not on how God will preserve his own legacy and his own efforts in the earth, but the way that God is preserving his own glory and how he himself on his throne in heaven is eternally administering justice. 
So again, we see the theme repeated here of the attentiveness of the Lord, that he is not disinvolved with the world, but he is actively judging the world. Um, I also, I looked into righteousness and uprightness here to wonder if there was more behind the word than we see, but they really mean exactly what they say. And I feel like these words can kind of feel a bit cliche at time because they're very much so repeated throughout the Bible. But they're important words and the general sense of them as we normally interpret is that God's judgment is completely right. It's totally upright. That again, he's different from man and there is no partiality to his justice, but it's totally perfect. Moving on, we look at verses nine and 10, which read, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So again, David is really pounding in the, the same theme that God is active. He does not forsake his people, that he is consistent and reliable and able to be trusted. Um, Note in verse 10 here, it says, those who know your name put their trust in you. It's not that those who know of your name or that there is a God, there's something he's getting at here that those who really know God are able to to put their trust in him because they're aware of his character. And we will actually see this right in the next verse, in verse 11, when David now breaks out in praise. He says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So, um, one thing I think we should really pull out of here is the feel of the flow is that David, based on all the theological truth he's just been spitting out, he just naturally erupts in praise, which I think makes sense and is something that we should really hold on to, that good theology, the natural result is worship. That when we understand God and his character and how he acts correctly, we can't help but praise him, which is something we do well to note from Oftentimes, our shallow worship comes from wanting to have the feeling of the praise and the singing and such without the depth that true theology provides for robust worship. So that's the, the first part. If we look at verse 12, something to really consider here, that it should be a scary verse I think. It says, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So if you are one of said afflicted, you should be encouraged. God does not forget you. He hears you, he is with you, and he, as the psalm has been saying this whole time, he's actively administering justice in heaven. But he is also the one who avenges blood. And he is, since he is mindful of the needy, and the afflicted, he is also mindful of their oppressors, and he is not ignoring them either. So he's attentive to everything. Um, also just wanna add here that the way we should understand this whole, it's really kind of a bridge of sorts 
as we might see in a modern song, that David's making a, a transition here from the first half of the psalm to a second. So if we move on into verse... Oh, okay, I forgot about this. <clears throat> I wanted to add the, the word mindful. It's actually the same word that we just saw in Psalm 8 when it's talking about what is man that you are mindful of him. I just thought it was interesting. It's also Zakar, the same idea that one could say, for he who avenges blood remembers them. Just has a bit more context to understand that phrase. So moving on into verse 13 to 14, the text reads, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Again, David's just pounding on the same idea here that because he understands that God is a righteous judge who cares for the afflicted, that he's able to say this prayer, which is something really valuable that I think we can latch onto that if we want to pray effectively and well, we really need to understand with the correct understanding of God's character that since David understands who God is, he understands what to ask from him. He knows that God cares for the afflicted and the weak and the needy. So of course it makes sense for him to pray, see my affliction. Um, in the same way that we've said before here, when this, um, we see in scripture the call, remember Lord, your promises, it's not so much a request for God to actually remember, because of course God will remember. It's more so a reminder that, okay, God will remember. And I think we see the same thing here. When he says, see my affliction from those who hate me. I mean, I think it is an honest prayer, but at the same time, it's also a reminder to David of, I know that God sees my affliction. I know, and praying this is helping me to push that truth into my mind, that he does see me. Then in the second half of that, oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death, Another phrase I thought was interesting, again, I looked up the words, there's really nothing deeper, it means exactly what it says. But I think what is interesting is that gates is kind of a bit of an archaic term for us, I think. I think if we were to maybe translate this a bit more modern, you could say, oh, you who lift me up from the threshold of death or from the door of death, with the general idea being that the way David is recounting his state is that he's there, like he's in a horrible state of death and not in a good place, like he's on the edge of it. And he's saying, God, lift, I know that you will not let me go there all the way that you will save me. So save me, because I'm about to enter into it. So then in verse 14, um, I thought this was super interesting too. He says, so he says that prayer, he says, that I may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So I just want to preface this with a story I heard in a sermon once where a pastor was approached by a man who was asking for prayer for healing. And he asked the man, okay, uh, why do you want to be healed? And the man kind of looked at him with an odd look on his face, like, why do I want to be healed? Um, well, I want to see my grandchildren. I want to live. Why would I not want to be healed? What kind of question is that? And the pastor looked at me and just basically told him what a terrible <laughs> response that was. 
that we see the opposite from David here, that his request to be delivered is not just to fulfill his own selfish desires or his own self-preservation, that there's a greater idea here, that his life isn't just about him, that the reason he wants to be delivered is that he may be continued to praise God. And furthermore, as it says, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that he may praise God with God's people. There's a bigger purpose We see from David, our lives are not about us, but we live in the scope of a bigger narrative that's very important that we see ourselves in. And again, that I may rejoice in your salvation. Preservation is all about God. Moving on. Verses 15 and 16, which read, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And then we see Higeon Salah. A lot of cool stuff here. So um, first part, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. This idea of someone literally digging a pit and falling into it or setting a net and trap for someone else and then being caught up in it the idea that the wicked deeds that the nations are doing themselves, the enemies of God, end up being their own demise. Um, Two examples I thought that showed this that are pretty easy to grasp are if we think of someone like Joseph Stalin, who was extremely paranoid about being assassinated and killed, uh, rightly so. There were a lot of people who didn't want to kill him. Um, If you look at some of the information from those who were able to spend time without him without dying, which is actually pretty few, that he, within his house, he had four different bedrooms and his, the people attending him, they never knew which one he was gonna sleep in, that he would always sleep in a different room every night and that whenever he would go out in public and he had to take a car, he would go in a motorcade of five identical cars in order that people wouldn't be able to spot which one he was in. And this is really a theme throughout Stalin's life that he lived in his constant paranoia, which was caused by his own wicked actions, that because of the treachery that he committed against so many people, he was forced to live under constant mental angst that he couldn't escape from. Now, in the same vein, we look at someone like Adolf Hitler, who, because of his own arrogance and belief in his superiority, he ultimately doomed himself by launching an invasion into Russia at a terrible time, ignoring the advice of his generals, which lost the war for him, that his own arrogance and wickedness and pride is ultimately what doomed him. But what is really interesting and worthwhile to catch up is here in verse 16, when it says, in light of this, it's the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. So the idea here is this plans of the wicked, it's not something that just happened in a vacuum, that we see someone like Stalin or Hitler or the enemies of God that David is referring here to is saying this judgment that the wicked wreaked upon themselves, that was God. That was God executing judgment, which I think is really helpful to us when we pray prayers for deliverance or help or on any given topic. And it seems like things just kind of work out in a natural progression that like, we would expect God to rain sulfur down from heaven sometimes and make himself clear, which he does do sometimes, but 
the psalm makes clear here that at least part of the time, and I would venture most of the time, that the way God acts is through what we may attribute as natural causes and that don't immediately like scream God, but that is where we want to look for the Lord. And I know some may mock that and say, oh, well, you're just attributing God on the natural events of the earth. And you can say that if you'd like, but you're wrong because the psalm says something else. Oh, okay. Now let's talk about the Hegeon and the Salah at the end here. Very interesting. So the um, page here. So the Hegeon seems to refer to a particular music, two things, just like we saw at the beginning of the psalm. It could be referring to an actual musical instrument, or it could also be referring to the word meditation. Would the, and since the Salah is also here, once again, another kind of ambiguous terms, but we've heard before it can mean the lifting up of hands or kind of a break, that the idea here seems to be that though, remember the Psalms were sung, these were people singing together, would be that at this point in the Psalm, there was kind of an instrumental break, is the idea. With, and we see the Hegeon with the, could it be translated as meditation. It seems the idea was that at this point in the Psalm, that those singing would pause, someone would do some instrumentation, and those singing would be taking time to reflect on that which they just sung. Which I think is, again, another really helpful concept, especially for worship music. It's this idea that the psalm, the psalmist here, was intentional that about reflection upon the things that he just sung. I think we could take note of that too. So, getting towards the end here. Verses 17 to 18. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So verse 17. Um, Sheol is one of those words that is often very debated in its use in the Old Testament. Um, It's commonly attributed to be hell. Um, Some will say it's just the grave. Scholars go back and forth, but what is clear as much as the word from what it's used is that it's the place where the dead go, it's definitely the place where the wicked dead people go, and it's not a good place. So whether it's hell or the grave or whatnot, it's not a good thing. It's, I would venture it is most certainly hell. The, the Hebrews did not have a very robust understanding of the afterlife. It's not a good thing. That's really what we need to get out of here. The second part is just fascinating. All the nations that forget God are the ones who are going to get here. Man, I think that oftentimes, who are the people that we think about going to hell? It's the murderers and the adulterers and the liars and the thieves and all the people, these really visible sins, right? But here the psalmist says, it's not just them. It's also theirs. People, they just don't think about God. Just go on living their life, and they're totally normal, and they just don't really have a care for him. But what have we seen throughout the whole rest of this psalm is that they may forget God, but God does not forget them. That's great if you're one of the afflicted and one of your people, but it's not great if you're one of the people that's forgetting about him because he knows you, and he knows the wickedness in your heart no matter how visible it is. Again, a statement that 
can be encouraging, but also very fearful. Okay, and then verse 18. Once again, these are really, we can, 17 and 18, the ESV separates them into separate chunks, and I think there's an argument to be made that they are talking about separate things, but I personally think that they're really tied together. That while 17 definitely is its own concept in a way that the wicked go to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, the word for there should cause us to pause. I think what it's getting at is this, is that it says the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. With the idea being the wicked people that are oppressing you, whether it's in this life or the next, God will remember you and God will administer justice through Sheol, which could be another argument that's not just talking about hell, but also some type of earthly punishment. Okay, so now we get to the very end here. Almost there. Verses 19 to 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Salah. So uh, I would, if you have your Bibles open, so just look at this verse and then look at verse, um, I think I wrote the wrong one down here in my notes. <laughs> um, look at verse seven. Seven. So verse seven says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established a throne for justice. Remember, if you go back before that, it talks about how the names of the wicked are being blotted out, the memory of them has perished. This is the theme of the psalm that we see kind of being capped up here, is David is pleading, let the nations know that they are but men, which is what he has been walking through this entire time, that the wicked, they pass away, they will be blotted out, they will be judged, you are eternal, Lord, make that known now on the earth. Let your truth be proclaimed and evident to all the people of the earth. Um, which I think is a prayer that we would do well to heed. I think that's really some more context for us when we say, um, may your will be done and your kingdom come. We're praying, may the truth of God be evident throughout the word and correct understanding of him. May it cause people to turn from their ways as one would hope the wicked would if they understood a text like this and that their forgetfulness is gonna send them the shield. Um. Yeah, and I think that's the sum of it here. So, run to a time of Q&A. Anyone who has questions? Jesse. I have a question. Uh, yes. I, really, I really love the way that you handled the, uh, the heavy language in uh, Psalm 9, verses 13 to 14. I also like how you wrap that up by saying we are part of like the bigger narrative. My question is, I don't think I've seen, um, in, in my own study, the phrasing, the daughter of Zion before. In your studying of this, did you find that phrase to be anywhere else in Scripture in that way, the same way? Um, I will be honest here. I put in my notes that I wanted to research the origins of that word, and I didn't. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things that I missed. So, so what I said, I, I, I mean, I've seen that throughout, um, that like in, at the end of Psalm 51, David talks about how, um, you know, may it please you to, to prosper Zion. So it, the Zion itself is a common phrase. In terms of daughter of Zion, nothing immediately pops in my memory. And like I said, I, 
I forgot, I, I like read it. I'm like, oh, I should look into that. And then I forgot. <laughs> so I unfortunately don't have an answer. That's a good enough answer for me. <laughs> Christina. Can you please um, talk about that, the prophetic tense? And um, what verses was that in, in um, chapter nine? That is, we're looking at verse, according to this theologian, I am not a Hebrew expert, but that is verses five to eight. Okay. And the... It is called the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect is the grammatical tense that this theologian referred it to in the sense that um, the events he's referring to have not actually happened, but he's talking about them as if they had already happened because of his assurance. Thank you. You are welcome. Jade. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses 1 to 7. Right, anybody else? Praise the Lord. Um, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to teach tonight. Lord, I thank you for your word, which you have given to us, Father, that we have something to study and to teach. And Lord, that your message is not hidden from us, Lord, but that you have brought it to us. You have spoken to us. You are attentive to us, Lord. You are involved with us, Father. And Lord, you are sovereignly judging the whole world, God. So I pray that these truths would give us comfort as we leave tonight, Lord, that we would know your totally attentive, involved hand, Father. And at the same time, Lord, that you would judge the wicked and those who have forgotten you. And Father, our prayers that you would bring them to repentance, Heavenly Father. You'd bring them to a full knowledge of the truth. And Lord, that we may even be able to play a part of that in our efforts here, Father. I thank you for everyone here tonight. I thank you for everyone listening, Father. And I pray that your word would truly cut to hearts and minds in those places where you alone know that it needs to, Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Thank you, friends. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.